I invite you now to turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. And I'm going to read these five verses for us this evening. But before I do, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that this is the word of the Lord. So let us attend to it as such. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Beloved of God, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. So let's ask the Lord now to use his word by his spirit to cause our hearts to rejoice in him and him alone. Lord God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we have now heard from your word. And so together we lift up our eyes to you who are enthroned in the heavens and we ask you for mercy. Mercy that we might rightly know you through your word and by your spirit. And so even as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, so too now our eyes look to you, the Lord our God, until you have mercy upon us. We ask all these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, as we've continued to walk through Paul's first letter to Timothy, we see that the great theme, and I hope you don't get tired of hearing this, the great theme is that he's instructing the church, Timothy and the Ephesian church in particular, how the church ought to engage in the public worship of God. And if you remember from chapter 1, right out of the gate, Paul's concern in Ephesus and to Timothy is that he address the false teaching and the false teachers that are running amok there. And what we see now as we head into chapter 4 is that Paul returns to that great concern again. And what he tells Timothy is, Timothy, you can expect that some are going to fall away as you conduct your gospel ministry there. And this is going to happen because they're going to follow the lies of false teachers. And so this is how you ought to respond. And I just love this because I don't love the topic. It's sad that it's necessary that this be covered in the church, but it's a sad reality that needs to be addressed. And I think we see here the pastoral care of Paul for his young protege, Timothy. We see the care of the Lord Jesus Christ for his under-shepherd, Timothy, and for the Ephesian church in saying, you can expect this to happen in your ministry, and here's how you ought to respond. Because I can tell you as a, a young gospel minister, it's hard when you see people walk away from the faith, when you see some depart from the faith. And so how loving and kind of Christ to offer an explanation of why this happens. And so as we look at how some do depart from the faith, 
I want us to look at these five verses under three headings, quite simply. First of all, we're going to look at the Spirit's warning in verse 1, that the Spirit has warned the church that this is going to happen. And so we need to heed that warning. Second of all, we're going to look at the false teachers' lies. We'll look at that in verses 2 and 3. We'll look at the character of these false teachers, and then we'll look at the fundamental nature of the lies that they're telling and how really every false teacher has those lies, those underlying realities behind it. And then thirdly, what we'll see is how to respond to the false teacher's lies in verses 4 and 5. And again, I hope we're encouraged as we see this. Behold the love that Christ has for his church. That he would tell us this is going to happen. Here's what's behind it. And here's how you are to respond. So sovereign grace, may we receive that love from Christ this evening and hear what the Spirit has to say to us as his church. So let's look first then at the Spirit's warning in verse 1. Look at verse 1 with me. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Now, if you're a thoughtful reader, which I assume most of you are, you hear this and you go, okay, so the Spirit has expressly said this. Where has the Spirit said that? Where has the Spirit said that in latter times some will depart from the faith? Well, I want to tell you that I think the Spirit has spoken these words before, through the mouth of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ during his earthly ministry. And just a few examples, we could go to many passages, but let me just point you to two. First of all, you don't need to turn there, but listen to this as I read it to you. Jesus says this in Matthew 24, verses 9 through 11. He says, Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then... Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. So do you see where the Spirit has said this? Through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, this is what's going to happen in the latter times. Think also of Mark chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, where Christ says, And then if anyone says to you, Look, here is the Christ. Or look, there he is. Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. So do you see what the Spirit is saying? False teachers are going to arise. They're going to teach falsehoods. And some who have identified externally with the church, they're actually going to fall away. And the pressure to fall away is going to be so great in those days that if it weren't for the electing love of God and the fact that Christ keeps his own, even the elect might fall away. And so this is where Christ has spoken. The Spirit has spoken through Christ. The Spirit spoke then through Christ. The Spirit still speaks today to his church. And so, brothers and sisters, we ought to heed this warning that this is going to happen. So, what is this falling away? What does this look like? Well, it looks like apostasy. It looks like those, again, who were externally identified with the church, 
Either they were born in a covenant family or they made a profession of faith and were baptized and were living life in the church and they looked like a believer. But then they stumbled across the teachings of a false teacher. Maybe those false teachers even arose within the church and they heard those lies and they went astray. They renounced, recanted their faith in Christianity, their belief in Christ. And now they've shown themselves to be like what Jesus talks about in his parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. They're that rocky soil. Do you remember in Jesus' parable, the sower goes and he sows seed, and this is meant to represent to us the free offer of the gospel, the proclamation of the word, and it falls on different kinds of soil, and one of those soils is rocky soil. And the seed hits that soil, and a plant sprouts up in excitement, but in that haste, there's no true root. There's no true saving faith. And so when hard times come, when trials and persecutions come, that plant dies. And so this is exactly what Jesus is talking about. And I'm sure, brothers and sisters, you've seen this, haven't you? You've seen this happen to people that you love. In the church, I can tell you I've seen it time and time again as a pastor. And it is hard. It's hard not just relationally because I love these people, but it's hard because you know what this means for them as far as their relationship with God and the wrath that awaits them if they don't repent and change course. And so it's very difficult to bear, and yet the Spirit says you need to know that this is going to happen and anticipate this. So the Spirit says that some will turn from the faith, but, you know, nature hates a vacuum. It's not that they turn from something to nothing. So they're turning away from the faith once for all delivered to the saints. What are they turning to? Well, look at the second half of verse 1. They devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. So those who once professed to believe in Christianity and were identified with the church, they walk away. And what do they devote themselves? They devote themselves to lies and falsehoods propagated by false teachers. And notice who Paul says the ultimate source of these are. These are the teachings of demons. Now, brothers and sisters, that shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because who ultimately is the father, John chapter 8, verse 44, of all lies? It's Satan himself. And then how does he propagate those lies far and wide, but by sending his demons, his henchmen, out to go and spread them through the false teachers that are more than willing to adhere to those false lies? And so we see that this is what's happening. This is what's going to happen in the church. And brothers and sisters, this is not anything new. There's nothing new under the sun. And so you can go back and read church history and pay attention to all the heresies, the lies that arrive within the church and how people fall away and they believe these. And so what you'll see if you study church history, which I commend to you, it's why it's necessary that every gospel minister know his church history, is because it allows you to identify those lies more quickly and see how Satan's just repackaging them once again. And so the Spirit has warned us, and behold, he's right, isn't he? We see that his word is true, and so we see some depart from the faith. Now, the next question we need to ask is, when will this happen? 
When is this going to happen? Look at what Paul says again in verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times. In latter times. Now I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on this because historically we spent a lot of time arguing both in Hebrews and in the book of Revelation that the latter times, it's the same idea as the latter days throughout Scripture. And what are the latter days? The New Testament authors are abundantly clear. It's that time from Christ's ascension until his second coming. And so ever since Christ has gone back to the Father, this is what's happening within the church. Some are departing from the faith, following after the lies of false teachers. And that will continue to happen until Christ comes yet again. And as we hear this, brothers and sisters, we ought to understand this is not just a warning for somebody else here tonight. This is a warning for all of us. This is a warning for you, and this is a warning for me. And you see, it's through warnings like these that make us tremble, that remind us of just how weak and frail we are in and of ourselves, that we can't keep ourselves that then cause us by the Holy Spirit to fly to Christ all the more. That cause us to cry out to him in faith, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Keep me, hold me fast. And our great confidence is, brothers and sisters, he promises he will. He will keep us. He will hold us fast. And so warnings like this remind us of what Christ has saved us from. Because he's done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to the Father. And so these remind us that we are no longer under the curse of the law. Why? Because Jesus became a curse for us on the cross. That's how the Spirit uses these warnings in the life of his elect. But here's the thing, and this is a sad reality, that's not the only way that the Spirit uses these warnings. And this dovetails very well with the sermon this morning. He also uses these warnings to warn those who are not elect. Now, we don't know who the elect are and aren't, but those who have identified externally with the church but have not actually experienced new life by the Spirit. So they look and talk and come to the services and they look just like you and me, but that's just true of them externally. The internal realities are not true of them. And so the reality is that they will fall away. Some of you here tonight most likely probably will fall away. I don't rejoice in that. That saddens me. And may God make it true that that's not true of anybody that's in here tonight. But the reality is, is that the church is to be warned. The Spirit warns us in these ways. And so let us be warned, sovereign grace. And let me end by making this abundantly clear. I am not saying that the elect can fall away from the faith because they can't. They may wander for a season, but the Lord will bring them back. And we will see that they didn't actually ever truly fully fall away, but the Lord granted to them repentance. And so what we understand is that Christ will not lose even one of the elect whom the Father has given to him. But what I am saying is that there are those who look like they belong, but they don't. And we'll know that eventually because many of them will fall away. And John says that they went out from us because they were never truly of us. 
They were externally a part of the church, the visible church, but they never experienced the new life that the Spirit brings. So this is the sad reality. Here's the warning. Now, the next question we need to answer is, by what means will those who fall away be led astray? How will they come to be devoted by these demonic lies? And the Spirit shows us that it's through false teachers, which leads us to our second point, the false teachers' lies. So let's look first at the nature of these teachers and their lies in verse 2. Look there with me. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So do you see what the Spirit's saying? It's through the teaching of insincere liars that some depart from the faith. And who are these false teachers? Well, Paul doesn't mince his words here, does he? He says they're insincere liars, hypocrites, who are in the church. Now, I realize it's not very popular to say that, is it? It's not very popular to call people false teachers, to tell them they're insincere, they're hypocrites. And often the response you'll hear is, well, that's really, really mean. Well, can we just put to death tonight the cultural idol of niceness? So they give you a certain aesthetic and you feel a certain way, so they're nice and they ought to be listened to, whatever comes out of their mouth, even if it's not in accord with God's sacred word? Listen, I don't care how nice somebody is. If they are claiming to be a pastor or a teacher and teach authoritatively, and then they play fast and loose with the truth, who cares how nice they are? Niceness is not a fruit of the Spirit. You know what is? Kindness. And you know what kind people do? They tell the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that they unnecessarily try to offend people. But it does mean that whatever personal cost to them, they don't shine you on with a big white smile, right? And say, hey, no, this is the way you're supposed to go. Yeah, knowing full well, they're lying. And yet, it doesn't bother them. Why? Because they have, have seared their conscience. They've seared it. How? Through the constant insincerity of their lives. So they don't even flinch when they flick another lie out there. And so Paul says this is the nature of these false teachers. They are wolves in sheep or shepherd's clothing. Because Paul flat says, you can see it right there in black and white, they are insincere. In other words, they say that they hold to the faith. They profess that. But they don't actually. And so it's interesting. What a contrast to what is required of elders and deacons just back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 9, who Paul says, what must they be characterized by? They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And that is not what these false teachers have. Instead, they're like Hymenaeus and Alexander, back from the very tail end of chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, who make shipwreck of faith by not holding the faith and a good conscience. So this is who these false teachers are, and they're always around. They are always around. Christ said as much. In these latter times, brothers and sisters, that's the time in which we live, these kind of teachers are going to be running around trying to claim authority, but they're insincere liars and hypocrites, so we need to be aware. Now, here's the next question. Okay, so that's the nature of these false teachers. Now, what do they actually teach? What do they actually teach? All right, well, let's look at verse 3. Who forbid marriage 
and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. So in this particular context, what are they forbidding? They're saying you can't get married, and they're saying that there are certain foods that you're not supposed to eat. Now this was a very, very, very popular heresy in the second century. Super popular. It's called Gnosticism. And I'm not going to get into all the minute details. We don't have time to do that. But let me make this as simple as I possibly can. The Gnostics essentially taught a form of dualism. That physical things, matter is bad, and spiritual things, if you want to call them immaterial, spiritual things are good. And so you ought to shun these physical things, and you ought to try to get as close to these spiritual things as you possibly can. Now, without getting lost in all the details, I want to strip back the trappings and get to the essential problem here. What is the essential problem? The essential problem is they're trying to command of Christians, of the church, commands of men as if they were the commands of God. Because where does God in his word say you shouldn't get married? I can't find anywhere where he says that. Or where does he say in his word you can't eat certain foods? Now you may say, well, in the Old Testament. Well, yeah, in the Old Testament. But go see Acts chapter 10. Go see the whole New Testament. Those dietary restrictions are no longer in place because they pointed us to Christ. And now that the reality is here and he's fulfilled all of that, they're gone and done away with. And so here are the lies that the teachers are propagating. They're propagating commands trying to bind your conscience concerning things that God has not bound your conscience. Where you have liberty, they want to take that away from you. I think the intention there is it's a power thing. If they're able to tell you whatever they want and it doesn't have to be tethered to the word of God, guess who has the power? They do. And that's exactly what they're after. Now, it's really hard to tell with false teachers that this is what they're up to, though. Because what do we learn in the New Testament? Does Satan come saying, hey, I'm Satan, I'm here to deceive you? No. He's been at this a long time. He's really clever. He comes as an angel of light. He comes telling you that he offers you your best life now. If you'll just do this, if you'll just do that. And so he says, you know, <laughs> how are you going to look at someone who's smiling and telling you that I'm interested in your best life now? How are you going to tell them you're an insincere liar? Get out of here. I'm not going to listen to you. So a lot of people are hoodwinked by these sorts of people. I mean, it's, I don't know why I get these. Maybe you get these, but I get a lot of them. I don't, maybe it's because I'm a pastor. But I get these emails where people say, hey, if you send me this money, I can tell you the secrets to how to get really close to God, to how to experience God. We've found the secret. And I mean, they're advertisements that get sent out to a lot of other people. You can see how that might draw on people, right? I mean, brothers and sisters, don't we want to be closer to God? Don't we want to experience him? Well, yeah. The question, though, is not whether or not we want to experience that. The question is, what about these means that you're saying you've discovered that apparently God hasn't revealed in his word, but now you've discovered? So, again, they're trying to command you to do things that God hasn't commanded. Because the question is, has God said that as you use these means, I will draw closer to you? As you use these means that I've appointed, I will transform you. I will sanctify you. That's really the question that we have to ask. 
It's not up to whatever we want to just create. It's up to what God has commanded us to do. So brothers and sisters, we need to be aware. These are the kind of lies that the false teachers always employ. And here's the thing, and you see this if you read church history. Satan is not creative. He takes the same old lies, and he just propagates them again. It may be a little nuance here or there, but they're just the same old lies repackaged a little differently. And so again, it's, it's really helpful to know your church history so that your alarm bells go off. Now, I can't command you to study church history, but here's what I can command you to do. Know your Bible. Know what the Word of God says. Have it memorized. Know sound doctrine so that when false doctrine, lies come around from however smiley and happy and nice the pastor or speaker may seem to be. Test it against the standard of God's holy word and ask the Lord to cause you to be discerning, trusting him that he graciously will do that. Now, here's the thing that I love. I love that Paul doesn't just tell Timothy, here's what's going to happen. Here's what it's going to look like. Now go figure it out. No, he tells them how to respond. He says, here's how you ought to respond. And so brothers and sisters receive this as Jesus' pastoral care for us this evening. How should we respond, third point, to the false teacher's lies? Well, we're going to see that in verses 4 and 5. So look first at verse 4 with me. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. For everything created by God is good. Isn't that helpful? I think that's so helpful. Because what's created by God? Any kiddos in here know their catechism? What else did God make? My son's raising his hand. God made you and all things. And he did so for his own glory. And so because God has made it, it's good, right? God created all things, and he saw it, and behold, it was good. Why is that which God creates good? Because it reflects him, who is goodness itself. And so God made all things, and so if a thing exists, it is good. So let's follow the logic here. Marriage exists. So guess what? Marriage is good. And so it ought to be received with thanksgiving. Food exists. God created it, and so it's good. You get the point? And so I love Paul's response here. How do you respond to these false lies? Know the truth. <laughs> know the truth of God's word, that these are good gifts from God that we should receive with open hands. Now, here's the question. You can receive those good things in the wrong way. That's actually what makes them sinful. So how are we to receive these good things from God? Well, look at the second half of verse 4. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. In other words, we are to acknowledge that God made this thing, whatever it may be, so it's good, and then we are to acknowledge that he has graciously given it to us. In other words, we're to acknowledge the truth of James 1 verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes from him, the father of heavenly lights. And so we should receive those gifts with thankfulness from him. And I hope you know this. Thankfulness is a hallmark character of a Christian, isn't it? And we know that in part because how does Paul describe us in our unregenerate state? How does Paul describe us before we're saved? 
We don't have to guess. Romans 1.21 says of unbelievers that although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. They didn't honor him or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. That was us in our fallen state. But now that God has regenerated us by his Holy Spirit, one of the things that he does is he makes us thankful people, which is why Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.18 that we are those who ought to give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. So how do you know one of the ways that you've been changed by God? You're now a thankful person, not perfectly thankful, You are thankful, you're characterized by it, and you're growing in that thankfulness. And so what Paul is saying is is that as you receive these good gifts from God, you shouldn't reject them. You should receive them. And with thankfulness and gratitude to God, because you know what you deserve. I know what I deserve. It's hell. And yet he not only saves us in his son, but then he lavishes grace upon grace by giving us these good things. Now, here's the thing. As we receive those with thankfulness, what Paul says is is those things are not just good for us, but they actually become holy to us. Look at what he says in verse 5. For it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. In other words, these good gifts are set apart by God for our good and his glory as we receive them in thanksgiving and prayer according to his word. So that this will be true of us, brothers and sisters. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do, we are to do it all to the glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So material things like marriage and food aren't to be rejected because they're physical. Because they matter, but they're to be received from God with thanksgiving and prayer and in light of his word that shows us that he made all things good. In other words, as God's people, we receive all good gifts from our heavenly father. How? By faith. As we constantly commune and fellowship with him. And so to us, all God's gifts are not just good, but actually holy. They're actually set apart. So Sovereign Grace, do you see how kind Christ is to warn us? How kind the Spirit is to warn us through the Apostle Paul of what will happen in these latter days between Christ's first and second coming. And so we can know that false teachers will arise in the church. They will. And there will be those who fall away. They will reject the Christianity that they once professed, and they will embrace lies. And we see that happen, don't we? We don't rejoice in that. It saddens us. But we we shouldn't be surprised by it. We should expect that this will happen. And instead of being surprised, we should be warned, and we should tremble, and we should rejoice that we are secure in Christ Because he will keep us and he has done everything necessary for us to be reconciled to God. He is our keeper. And our keeper neither sleeps nor slumbers. And because that's true, let us reject the lies. Let us listen to the voice of our good shepherd as we hear it, as his gospel ministers proclaim the word. And turn away from the false siren calls of of the flesh and the world and the devil through the mouth of false teachers. 
because they're going to try to convince us to doubt God's word. Or they're going to try to add God's word. That's what they do. That's what they do every time. Instead, let us continue steadfast in communion with God in Christ by the word and the sacraments and prayer, receiving the good gifts that he gives us in faith, knowing that every good and perfect gift comes down from him. Make us such a people, Lord, we pray. And we ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.